0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Today it's my conversation with John Long. John is a paleontologist at Flinders University who's helped upend our ideas about human origins. The idea that humans and apes have a common ancestor was considered a wild idea when it was proposed back in the 19th century. But if you go back further in time, way further you can see that all animals, more or less, came from ancestors who lived in the sea. And that means that while humans do have a lot of ape in us, we also have a large swathe of fish in us as well. As part of his job, John Long searches the world to find remains of these impossibly ancient fish ancestors, the very first creatures who began to crawl out of the water and make a life on land. Fish that could breathe, with lungs as well as gills, and whose fins had become more like arms and legs. John has found fossils of ancient creatures from Iran to Antarctica, but his greatest finds have been here in Australia. Some years ago, he and his colleagues found a very special kind of fish. A fish with tiny fingers which were the basic prototype for the human hand. And there was another fish he found, 380 million years old, that revealed nothing less than the origins of sex. When I spoke to John, I asked him what he'd been up to since our first conversation 10 years earlier.
0: Well, I moved from Victoria to Los Angeles for three years, where I was a vice president of the Los Angeles County Museum. And we built some fantastic galleries there of dinosaurs and prehistoric mammals and Los Angeles history. And then I came back as an invited um, professor to do research at Flinders University. So I've been there ever since and just been loving it. When did you first start looking for fossils? Well, I grew up... In Melbourne, which is blessed with lots of amazing geology just in the suburban regions. And as a kid in grade two at primary school, I got invited to a fossil hunting trip with my school friend's father. And the you know the three of us went to a little quarry in Lilydale. I was about seven at the time. Yes, I remember it was 1964 when <laughs> I lost threepence on the grand final when My Side Collingwood <laughs> got beaten by Melbourne. But nonetheless, <laughs> nonetheless, I got to go fossil hunting with Desmond Matthews and his dad, and that's when I found my first fossil, which was a tiny little beetle-like creature called a trilobite that lived at the bottom of the sea in Lilydale about 400 million years ago. And from the moment I split that rock and I saw this thing looking at me, which I didn't know what it was, but it was explained to me, I knew that fossils were what I really wanted to do, that paleontology was was a really cool subject.
1: Trinobites looked like I don't know,
0: a a little bit like, you know,
1: Balmain bugs or something, didn't they? A certain kind of crustacean. Yeah. Were they armour-plated or were they
0: soft? What were these creatures? Well, they were like crabs today, like crustaceans. They had a chitinous sort of outer skeleton. They were made of three sort of sections, which is why they're called trilobite, you know, three parts. And they were the dominant sort of crustacean life for about, you know, 350 million years on the planet. So... They're pretty easy to find if you get to the right rocks of the right age. When you found this fossil, did you feel
1: that sense of deep time? Were you too young for that? Or did you actually feel that sense of impossible ancientness of this creature?
0: Yes, in some respects I did, Richard, but I felt more the sense of displacement, that here I was standing in a a quarry in a paddock in Lilydale that was once like hundreds of metres below the sea. And that really blew my mind. You know, I didn't really have the sense of time so well in those days, because at the time I thought I was likely to find a dinosaur in those rocks as well. And it was not till much, much later that I realised geological time covered a vast period of Earth history, when you had creatures alive like trilobites well before the dinosaurs had evolved on land and of course that's well, well before humans were even um, starting to evolve. So it took a while for time to sink in, but the sense of displacement and how different the world was was really what grabbed my imagination. Yeah, this is
1: the Devonian Age we're talking about, going back 300, uh, 400
0: million years or thereabouts.
1: If we could sort of look at the Earth from space in the Devonian Age, looking down
0: on it, would we recognise it at all? Not at all. I mean, we'd recognise the blue oceans of planet Earth, which is one of our hallmark features, but the continents were totally different. Uh, we had Australia, Antarctica, India, South America, Africa joined as this magnificent supercontinent of Gondwana in the south, the biggest continent on planet Earth at the time. And then we had Europe and Asia, parts of Russia, as America. We had blocks that were the Chinese terrains, you know, it was very, very different in terms of the the geography. The temperatures were much warmer. The land was just a totally different landscape, honestly. there was We haven't really got plants or soil well developed at the beginning of the Devonian. This is about 419 million years ago. But by the end of the Devonian, roughly 70 million years later, we have the first forests over 20 metres high, and we have the first animals walking on land. So, you know, I like to think of the Devonian as the really hip period of geology where everything happened. So during the course of the Devonian,
1: if, if you could sort of see that fast forward from space, I'm, I'm going right in a limb here, I think, yeah. you'd see the land change from what being uh, kind of gravelly brown to this electric green over time then.
0: Yeah, I think by the start of the Devonian, and certainly by the period before, we had some plant cover. We had mosses and, and, and bryophytes and, and lichens and things like that, you know, low ground cover. But it was during the Devonian, we had some massive fluctuations of oxygen for a start. You know, we had peaks of oxygen at like nearly 29%. Today, it's 21% at the beginning of the Devonian. And then a drop where it went down to maybe, you know, 12 or 13% in the middle of the Devonian, And that was a catalyst that that creatures needed extra oxygen, you know, probably breathing started at that point, breathing air. And then later on, it skyrocketed. And, you know, by about 330 million years ago, just after the Devonian finished, we had 30% oxygen. And that was when we could have gigantic insects and, and creatures that are constrained by oxygen to their body size could get much bigger. And gigantic fires as well, given that there's that much more oxygen in the air? Absolutely, there were widespread fires at the time, and a really high temperatures. So it was a greenhouse Earth at that time. When we're talking about uh, there being forests on the Earth, are we talking about trees or giant ferns in those days? Well, you're right. We wouldn't call them trees, as in terms of the modern flowering trees or, or even the conifers like the pines today, but gigantic tree ferns and also lycopods or horsetails, and these are tiny, smallish plants that live around ponds today, but they grew to 20-metre-high trees in the Devonian. So, yeah, we had forests made of completely different kinds of plants than we than make forests today. But nonetheless, it was a time when plants expanded away from waterways and the first proto-seeds were evolving so that plants could then be free of waterways and invade the inland parts of continents. You wrote some children's books. Yeah. Where you asked kids to imagine what would happen if
1: they'd stepped into a time machine and been transported back to the Devonian age. For a start, would they be able to breathe? You said the air was sort of, the oxygen level was going up and down, but by and large, would humans have been able to breathe comfortably in that atmosphere?
0: Yes, I think so. I mean, more oxygen is fine. Low oxygen is what you get at high altitudes today. And so if they were bang in the middle of the Devonian when the oxygen was low, then maybe they would have found it a bit hard to breathe. Luckily, in my novel, The Mystery of Devil's Roost, the kids emerge from this time-travelling cave and they're in the later part of the Devonian where they can catch a a placoderm fish, an armoured-plated fish, and eat it and they have adventures with very large invertebrate animals like large scorpions and centipedes. Um, But yeah, at that time, oxygen going from 13% to 29%. And would scorpions and centipedes be the only animals scuttling about on land at that point? No, there would have been a lot of different invertebrates, small springtail type insects, no real flying insects until right at the end of the late Devonian, but mostly, you know, what we call springtails and uh, silverfish, that sort of thing. Lots of arachnids mites and, and spider like creatures and certainly millipedes and centipede type creatures now
1: most of the time you're you're studying these placoderms these armored fish, these boxy-looking armoured fish that swam the oceans of the Devonian Age. Were these big fish, small
0: fish, or was there wild variation? Well, placoderms were the first backboned animals or vertebrates to really take over the planet in a big way. You know, they they dominated the seas, the rivers, the lakes of the world for something like 70 million years, or 80 million years, actually. And they were also the very first backboned animals to reach gigantic sizes. So up until then, we had jawless fishes that might have got to a couple of feet long at the most. But we had placoderms by the late Devonian roughly 375 million years ago that were growing to nine metres in length. You know, these gigantic predators (laughs) like uh, Dunkleosteus from North America and Titanichthys, which was almost like a whale. It was a filter-feeding giant placoderm without teeth. So we had a huge range of of environmental niches that these placoderms occupied just like fishes do today they're a really fascinating group and they're more important than ever in paleontology just due to discoveries in the last 10 years or so because they've filled in a lot of gaps about how we understand the beginnings of what I call the, the human body plan.
1: I've seen some images and animations of fish of this era and some of them look like muppets. <laughs> you know, they've got, <laughs> yeah. got little eyes on the front of their heads and they've got sort of flat heads like salamanders or something with Google eyes at the top of them. Are, are all those fish like that or do they have
0: the eyes at the side of their head? Well, there's lots of different kinds of fish in the Devonian uh, Richard, you're thinking of the lobe fin fishes that, that would have given rise to the first land animals or amphibians. Um, they were like flat-headed crocodile-like skulls. Um, yeah, they look goofy. Yeah, very goofy with <laughs> eyes in the middle, uh, eyes that stick up almost on stalks that can look around. Uh, but the placoderms were were a different, many different kinds of placoderms, from predatory forms to forms that were probably filter feeders and forms that ate plants, you know. So we had great variation in all these different fish groups at the time. So us, like I said at the start, we come,
1: well, we can trace our ancestry back. Can all animals trace their, can all vertebrate animals trace their ancestry way back to these vertebrate
0: fish, John? Yeah, well, this is the $64 million question, Richard, because if you'd studied placoderms, say, 10 or 15 years ago, everybody thought of them as like a dead-end group that just bang, they went extinct at the end of the Devonian, so who cares? They don't tell us much about life on Earth today. But some fascinating discoveries that came out of China from starting about 2013 onwards revealed the earliest complete placoderms in the fossil record, and these were Silurian age, about 430 million years old, and they showed that the earliest placoderms were actually the most advanced or most uh, structurally advanced placoderms that we know of. And then we had to reverse our thinking about everything we thought about placoderm evolution. Hang on, you're talking about fish that were around before the Devonian Age, then. is yes, that what you're saying? Yes, yes. Yeah, we had fragments of placoderms from the beginning of the Silurian, but we found the first complete placoderms from that period uh, from China, um, a site I've been to a couple of times now in Yunnan province. And so why this was so revolutionary at the time was because Every other placoderm ever found on the planet has just a single bone forming the lower jaw, you know, a very simple bone. And these ones had a series of bones, like seven or eight, forming a a mosaic of bones, exactly like the first tetrapods or amphibians or, you know, land creatures. And so immediately there was this link between these really early placoderms and advanced fishes with the same jaw structure and the first amphibians. And it's transpired since then that we come up with the likelihood, the probability of the tree of evolution, that these were actually really advanced placoderms and we have more primitive ones before them. And so most of the placoderms of the Devonian represent another lineage kind of thing. And that these placoderms are now firmly rooted on the evolutionary tree leading to the rest of the vertebrates, to land animals, including humans. So suddenly placoderms... To me, it's a lot like the story of dinosaurs, you know, back in the the late 60s, the first theories were coming out that birds might be related to dinosaurs. And then that was kind of cemented in the mid-90s from, again, discoveries from China, where we had beautifully preserved complete small dinosaurs with feathers on them. And now the story of how birds evolved from dinosaurs is basically accepted in every, you know, biology textbook in the world. Everybody, nobody disputes it. So now think of placoderms as being the missing link in the story of human evolution, the beginnings of many of the structures that we have, like jaws, teeth, uh, skulls with, with pairs of plates, paired limbs, hind legs, you know, pelvic fins were with, with first developed in placoderms that eventually evolved to become the hind limbs or the legs of us humans. So now I think about, you know, a lot of the human body plan started with placoderms and then was refined with these higher fish groups. So are humans more fish than they are not fish, if that makes sense? Yes. In one of my books, I postulated that if I took the skeleton of one of my Devonian fishes, one I actually named Gogonasus, uh, which was a lobe-finned fish, an advanced air-breathing fish with, with very muscular fins with the same bones in its arms as, as you have, the humus ulnar radius, the same bones in its, in its rear fins as in our legs and so on, if you took the skeleton of that fish and you scaled it up to a human skeleton, you could see about 90% of the skeletal structures had evolved in fish that, that make up the human skeleton. When fish
1: grew legs, the tetrapods, four-limbed fish, such as they are... How important is this for, for the evolution of life on land, John?
0: Well, it, it's pretty important, Richard. Fish developed most of the skills, if you like, that they needed for living on land while they're in the water. So, I mean, I've got a, a wonderful collection of old rare books in paleontology, and there's, there's some of them, like the, the Vestiges of Creation, dating from the 1800s, that sort of have this image of how did the first amphibians evolve? A fish kind of flopped out of the water, it wriggled on land, and it kind of suddenly grew arms and legs and started breathing air. You know, and that's how scientists basically thought of it, you know, back in the, the 19th century. Now we have all of those transitions documented by newly discovered fossils. And, you know, one of the, the big things we found last year that was published in the journal Nature was a fish from Canada that my colleague Richard Cloutier from the University of Quebec was involved in the discovery. And uh, he came out to Flinders University and spent six months working with me and we discovered that using a synchrotron and analysing with... Uh, micro CT, the, the fin of this fish, we could see the beginnings of the first digit bones. They're the same bones you have in your fingers and toes. So that was the first time we shattered the boundary that fish are things with fins. And tetrapods or land animals have fingers and toes and there's no in-between, you know, they either have this or they don't. And then we found a fish with digit bones that kind of said, well, hang on a minute, now fish evolved those structures while they were still in the water so they were pre-adapted, you know, to bear weight
1: on those fins and and invade land. So there's two things here. There's the breathing and there's the walking, so to speak. The walking aspect of it, you're saying that you found these ancient fish that have fins and embedded in them are within the fins themselves are these
0: things that are quite clearly fingers. Uh, They weren't fingers, they were digit bones. And there's a difference because we think of a digit as a finger, but the bone, the elements of bones that are inside our fingers are the phalanges or digit bones. But these fish had the beginnings of rows of digits, but within a fin. So they didn't have separate fingers like we have. So when you say digits, you mean like the very top
1: part of our fingers, in other words, the very no, no, no. top part.
0: What I'm talking about, if we look at the human hand, we've got a like a palm and then we've got fingers and each of those fingers has three bones in them. These are called phalangeal bones or digit bones. So imagine if those bones started to form in the fish fin after the, the wrist bones and after the forearm bones, then we've got the whole pattern of the human arm, but still in a fish fin. And so that... You know they hadn't actually differentiated out into into movable fingers at that stage, they were still stuck within the framework of a fin. I suppose my question then is these digits that you've found in these ancient fish were they grabby? <laughs> no, no, they, they were probably more for support uh, so they could lift their their big heavy heads out of the water in the shallows and 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 see or breathe through the holes on the top of their heads called spiracles.
1: So these were for movement rather than for for grabbing. Is it only later, as they start venturing uh, more onto land and spending more and more time on land, that these things evolve into proper fingers and then proper hands that are used to snatch and grab things? Yes,
0: absolutely. Some of the earliest tetrapods, like early amphibian-like creatures, had multiple fingers and toes. They were experimenting. So some of them had seven, some of them had eight uh, fingers and toes... But eventually, once they invaded land, they settled on this standard pattern of five fingers and five toes, the hands and feet. And that's, that's universal for all vertebrates except where they deviate and do something strange, like if they go back into the water and develop paddles like whales did or, or fish lizards, ichthyosaurs, then they can have multiple fingers again appear. But, no, the story of arms and legs is a fish story and the story of digits is now partly a fish story But the arrangement of those digits to do the functions of the hand to grab things and so on is really when land animals uh, took over the earth. So you're saying that this process of getting arms, hands and legs
1: and, and even fingers down the track was already well underway while these creatures were still underwater?
0: Absolutely. We've got evidence for most of the structures that we have in our skeleton first evolving in fishes.
1: You mentioned breathing there. Yeah, breathing on the surface. Now, I've seen a lungfish and that, that in the West is kind of wild watching a lungfish surface and gulp down some air. Were these creatures starting to breathe and
0: how were they breathing as they started to venture onto land? People often wonder why did fish start to breathe air, but many fish today, many living fish can breathe air uh, or take it in to top up the oxygen they get from their gills. Now, lungfish are highly advanced fish that can um, take in big lumps of air and breathe it through a lung that they have. But but many primitive fish today, like the birch ear fishes of Africa, the reed fish, they have lungs as well. And they breathe air to top up their oxygen when they're living in a, a lake or part of the, the river system that might be low in oxygen. Even oceanic fish like tarpon can can take in a, accessory oxygen and gulp it and, and, you know, process it. So a lot of fish today we know breathe a little bit of air to top up their oxygen needs they get from gills. But these ancient Devonian fish were really special because the lineage that led to the first land animals had big holes on the top of their heads. And we know from living fish today that have the same holes, they take in air to the lung directly through these big holes called spiracles. Now, one of the fish I discovered from gogo, which I named back in 1985, I think it was called gogo nasus, because I only had a snout. So gogo nasus means snout from gogo, the locality meaning, you know, gogo station. Later on, in 1986, my first big expedition to the Kimberley, I found the, the whole complete head of a gogo nasus, but it was still a little bit damaged, and it didn't reveal those spiracles yet. But in 2005, we went back again, and we found a beautiful, complete gogo nasus from snout to tail and that had these big holes in the head crystal clear. more importantly though, fishes that breathe in water have like five or six or sometimes even seven sets of gills to, to extract their oxygen. but this gogonasus had a reduced set of gills as if it wasn't needing the gills anymore so that was the double evidence that that made me think that this is the beginning of you know fishes, starting to become more reliant on lung breathing rather than gill breathing. <laughs> wow, like the gills are slowly sort of becoming like an appendix, not, not, not of
1: terribly much use to the, to, to the body anymore.
0: Yeah, they become atrophied. But even in living amphibians that start off as tadpoles that have gills, and then they breathe air and rely on their lungs, you know, we can see this transformation in one living species today. This might be a really silly question, but They're breathing through holes in the head. Do
1: these creatures have brains to speak of? And (laughs) how how are they getting around the brains?
0: They have amazing brains. And and one of the, the big revolutions in paleontology of recent years is studying the reconstructed brains of these fishes. And we have a current... ARC grant from the government on called Brains Frozen in Time, where we put skulls of these perfectly preserved fish through the synchrotron or the neutron beams at ANSTO and then reconstruct the cavities where the brain existed. So we do know the brains, and the brains were fairly narrow, so the holes were on either side of the the brain. They didn't actually they, they lead to a pathway around the brain and the inner ear. Uh, to a tube in the throat which goes to the lung. So, And why on top of the head? Well, simply because if you surface, you can take in your air quickly through the top of your head and go down again. It's a pretty efficient way of taking in oxygen. Reminds me of my favourite Gary Larson
1: cartoon, the Far Side cartoon, where there's a yep. conference of dinosaurs, and there's a T-Rex saying, "Gentlemen, the outlook is very bleak. The Earth's climate is changing, and we all have a brain the size of a chicken." Now, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when, we, when we're talking about fish brains, what are we talking about? A pea, or what?
0: No, no, no. They had quite quite large brains. Generally, um, you know, the size of the skull filling in the brain case with with elaborate inner ear canals. Now, you know how we humans, uh, if we look to the inner ear, we have three semicircular canals, you know, for balance. Well, the placoderms, that's the other thing they gave us. Placoderms were the first creatures on earth to have this arrangement of three semicircular canals because the jawless fish only have two of those canals. So it's not only breathing, it's also balance and orientation and, you know, being able to sort of uh, orientate yourself if you're a fast moving predator. Um, so there's all sorts of things like that that always come back to the fish. So in
1: some ways for a paleontologist, is this the most exciting era to study, the Devonian era? Where it, does it, it sounds like what you're describing is nature sort of moving into fast forward at
0: this point. I think the study of Devonian fish right now is one of the most exciting fields of science, full stop. I mean, the discovery of these amazing complete fish from china you know just in the last 10 years it's not just placoderms they got the earliest complete lobe fin fishes from the silurian period as well from these same sites in in yunnan and every one of these fish they discovered revolutionized the thinking about how these different body plans were being cre- you know being developed through different adaptations and you know I think the discovery of these this fish that revolutionised placoderms uh, from China, I think that was the most important discovery in paleontology for the last 100 years, not since Archaeopteryx, because it completely revolutionised our thinking about the origins of the human body plan. You know, sure, we know about the last part, the evolution of mammals to apes to humans. We know about that really, really well. But it's the early part, where did these structures first originate and why? And they're the questions we're now starting to, to resolve. Is conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more Conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations.
1: You were talking earlier about a region where you've found a great many fascinating
0: fossils, John, called the Gogo
1: region in WA. Where is that? Is that up near Fitzroy Crossing, somewhere near there?
0: It is indeed, Richard. It's based from uh, Gogo Formation, which is the geological unit these fossils come from, which is of course named after Gogo Station just south of Fitzroy Crossing. But the area where the fossils occur is is a vast area of outcrop of these rocks, which probably covers something like 200 square kilometres of area. What's the landscape looked like? There is it red earth that rich red earth you find up in the northwest. No, it's not the pindan that you get round Broome, it's more grassy plains with jagged limestone ranges jutting out. The the limestone ranges there formed an ancient barrier reef that was one of the first great reefs to encircle Australia in the late Devonian about, you know, 380 million years ago. So in the Gogo region, you get these older parts of the reef exposed that have beautiful fish fossils in them. And when I say beautiful, I don't mean a fish squashed flat like a kipper in rock that people imagine a fish fossil. Imagine a limestone concretion like a bowling ball and you split it and you see a bone in it, but you don't know what's really in it. So you glue that back together again and put it in weak acetic acid and slowly you dissolve the rock away but the bone sticks out and doesn't get dissolved. And when you finish that process of hardening the bones with glue, you get the whole skeleton out in three-dimensional, uncrushed perfection, like, like the fish died yesterday. John, how long does it take you to melt a rock around a fossil? <laughs> <laughs> well, each one of these specimens might take four to six weeks, but we do a batch of them at a time. So you might do a dozen at a time. But I tell you what, it's worth it, Richard, because you're getting, you're getting a magical view into a skeleton of an extinct creature that is so perfectly preserved that it's just so amazingly rare to get such an ancient skeleton that is three-dimensionally perfect. Just in terms of a man who's standing in the field here, in,
1: which is a place which is very, very outback Australia and which was once a reef, you say, can you sort of squint and imagine it as it was when it was all underwater? Yeah,
0: yeah. When you're there, you see these limestone reefs sticking up in the valleys are the interreef basins and you get circular atoll reefs. But they weren't coral reefs because coral, coral was around then but it didn't form the reef. These reefs were formed of algae, stromatolites, which are sponge-like creatures. Uh, so very, much more primitive organisms were the structure that formed the reef. Corals were still there but they were just here and there. They weren't the sort of dominant uh, life form and this was in the tropics it was on across the equator where fishes lived and diversified and bred so you know it's not just the fact that we've got beautifully preserved fossil fishes from this site it's the great diversity of them, which is mind-boggling. Here, we've got over 50 different species. So it's not just the preservation that makes go-go unique in the whole world. It's the great diversity of different kinds of fishes as well. So we get a window into everything from these early armoured placoderms right through to the most advanced air-breathing fishes that are almost amphibians. So you've got one of these
1: armoured fish, these placoderms, swimming about in what was the ocean around this reef <laughs> around Fitzroy crossing around 350 million years ago 3, 380 380 yeah, 80, yeah. I <laughs> beg your pardon <butt>, sorry <laughs> give or take 10 um, yeah. 380 million years ago and and it's swimming around and it expires it carks it and it,
0: what happens then it just it just what it, it probably floats up to the top and then sinks to the bottom eventually. Exactly. Exactly right, Richard. Um, some of the, the brilliant work by my colleagues that I work with, Kate Tronijsjik at Curtin University, has studied the, how the fossils actually were preserved and she discovered that as the dead carcasses sank down through the, through the water, which would have been about 100 to 200 metres deep at the time to the basin, uh, there was a layer rich in um, hydrogen sulphide, a euxinic layer, and the chemistry was just right for rapid nodule formation, rapid crystals forming around a decaying carcass to sort of entomb it and trap everything so, so does that have a preservative effect on the fossil then? Yes, and a, a chemical effect to drive the preservation of some of the soft tissues we've found in gogo fishes are amazing and what what do you mean soft tissues well, how have you extracted soft tissue of a three hundred and eighty million year old fish. Well, way back in 2007, we published a paper that showed the muscles were preserved. They got oh. phosphatized, And so we had bands of muscles. And we even had the cells of the muscles with nerve cells attached to them, like the foot of the nerve cell. Uh, and you could see it clearly under the scanning electron microscopes. So you're cracking open a rock and you're finding a fish with still
1: some organic tissue on it. Does it
0: yes. stink? No, I wish it did. I'd be very happy. But unfortunately, we didn't even know this for quite a long time because we just kept finding these things and sticking them in acid baths. And then one day, um, Kate, who was my PhD student at the time, was looking at these placoderms and and she pioneered the study of not putting them in acid, but instead studying them um, under the microscope uh, and the synchrotron before they were put in acid and that revealed a whole host of different soft tissues. We have pictured one with, with a spiral valve of the gut preserved, and we have further research on this topic in the works right now with, with a major science journal, so I can't speak too much about but we've got some stunning soft organs we're going to reveal uh, probably next year in our next paper.
1: Uh, well, I have this theory about paleontologists and archaeologists, I reckon you're all secretly in it for the time travel. I can get some of them to admit it, (laughs) and others go, oh no, I'm in it for the science and for the blah, 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 blah. But I think you are all secretly in it for the time travel. When you've got that on your hands, this revealed ancient fish, do you have that sense of time travel, that sense of intimacy with this impossibly ancient past?
0: Oh, absolutely. When you strike that rock and it splits and you see a skull staring at you and you know it's something really significant like a new species or something it's it's a life once lived you know it's an intimate moment you're connecting with another living creature that that lived 380 million years ago and then you have two waves of discovery with these amazing go-go fish you have that beautiful moment in the field where you find something and you're very happy and you're on a high and then you take it back to the lab and you get that second wave of discovery where oh, my God, this is something really significant to science, you know, something that no one's ever seen before. And then, you know, that's the big, the big moment of, of scientific significance.
1: And we go to 2008. This is the moment when uh, you and your colleagues found something of extraordinary significance in one of these fish that you've pulled out of the ground. This was a fish that was like no other. Now, when we think of fish, I think we all just assume that the fish then as they do now, just lay 5,000 eggs and just hope a couple survive. What was different about this fish that you found?
0: Yeah, well, placoderms being very primitive fish, they were always thought to be the most primitive fish that gave rise to the living groups of fishes, you know, like sharks and bony fishes. So they were thought that maybe they would have had to spawn in water just like trout do today. But in one of these specimens, as we were slowly preparing it out in the acid bath, we noticed it had a series of, a collection of tiny little bones inside it. And at first we thought, oh, maybe it was its last meal. You know, it ate something and there's the skeleton of the last meal inside it. But when we looked at these bones under the microscope, we realized it was a miniature skeleton identical to the adult. And it had these very distinctive tooth plates that you could, you know, tell it was the same species and so on. And then the magical thing was revealed. A tiny little thread of mineralized tissue. It was an umbilical cord and it was connecting this tiny little embryo to what would have been probably a yolk sac. So eventually we put this thing through all the different analytical techniques we have and SEM, scanning electron microscope and synchrotrons and so on. Um, We revealed an unborn embryo and it turned out to be the oldest vertebrate embryo known on the planet. And when we published the paper in 2008, we called this fish Martopisus, meaning the mother fish, and we named it after Sir David Attenborough because he, on Life on Earth, 1979, went to Gogo and just raved about how this was such an important fossil site for the whole world. And I have met Sir David, and and he is absolutely thrilled to have this species named after him. But now he says he's always going to be remembered and associated for the or with the origins of sex, sex. <laughs> because we not only had the oldest embryo in the world, it meant they were doing it intimately. They weren't just spawning in water; they were doing it with each other. So we had the mother fish, and then we thought, well, how are they doing it? We need to find the daddy fish, and so we went back to the fossil collections, and there was another specimen right under our nose that had an ossified, bony a structure we call a clasper. Now, claspers are what sharks have and stingrays. The males have these long extensions coming off the pelvic fin that they insert inside the female and deposit sperm. So it's like a penis, but it's called a clasper, but it does the same job. We discovered that these placoderms had claspers, but they were made of bone. They were, you know... You know, I won't go there. <laughs> I could make jokes, but and then you know, so we discovered the mummy fish and the daddy fish. But then we realised that these were one particular groups of fishes that were fairly, so we say, advanced placoderms, and it didn't explain what the really primitive ones at the base of the vertebrate tree were doing. And that led me to Scotland, to one of my favourite places on all Earth, the Orkney Islands where some colleagues of mine had found these tiny little placoderm fishes. They weren't perfectly 3D like the go-go specimens, but they were squashed in rock, but still pretty nice specimens. And they had like little placoderm armors, but with tiny feet like boots. And no one could figure out what they were. And then the penny dropped with me that they were claspers. And so I went to the Orkneys on a couple of expeditions with my, my friends from England. That
1: uh, Can I just ask you something, John, while you're on the plane? And uh, the person sitting next to you said, so what are you going to Scotland for? Did you say, I'm going to look at an ancient fish penis? Did you
0: say things like that? I didn't, but it's a true story. It was on the way back from the Orkney, flying back to Edinburgh, that I'm on the plane. And this was after this work was published. And it made massive world headlines. It was, you know, all the world's news took it. It was on uh, QI, Stephen Fry. So I'm flying back from the Orkney and this lady's on the plane next to me and we're talking, and she said, what are you doing here? I said, oh, digging up some fossils, you know. And, the, and she said, oh, did you know the origins of sex was found here in Scotland with these fish? And I said, yeah, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, and then we had a really good conversation. But, yeah, it was very well known in Scotland. Yeah. Once you got there to Scotland to actually look at this fossil, what did you see on it? Well... The fish's name, and I didn't name it because it was discovered in the late 19th century by a, a geologist, Robert Traquere, this thing had tiny little arms sticking out the side of it with hooks on the arms, you know, like a crab. You know, it didn't have a pectoral fin like a shark. It had like an arm like a lobster or a crab, you know, covered in bone. So he called it microbrachius, which means little arms. And then he named a species after his esteemed fossil collector, Robert Dick. <laughs> and so it's called Microbrachius dicci. <laughs> and I had nothing to do with that. And then we discovered these things had massive bony claspers, which were the earliest male reproductive organs so far discovered on the planet. So you couldn't, you couldn't invent that story, but that's really how it oh, happened. Dear. And it also solved another mystery. For over 100 years, people had known this group of placoderm fishes called antiarchs had these bony arms, you know, enclosed in bone with, with little hooks on them. And nobody knew what they were for. They had no idea, you know, were they for walking on the bottom of the sea or whatever? And then we discovered that if you made a model of the male and the female microbrachius and you tried to sort of fit the male clasper into the female's genital region, the only way they could do it was one mating position the side by side position with the arms entwined. So these tiny little arms were used for reproduction, to for the male to place that clasper in the right position. And it looks like they're doing a square dance, like the dooty do. So I call it the origin of sex. The dooty <laughs> do position was the earliest sexual position of all of our backbone ancestors. There's a fair bit of gender equity there. No one's on top in that relationship. Well, the other important thing—that's right, Richard. But the other important thing about Microbrachius is the females had a separate series of little plates uh, that were like cheese graters and they were there to grasp and hold on to the clasper and and lock it into position. So we we have here the beginnings of sexual dimorphism in vertebrates, the differences between males and females for the first time. It's not just the male story here, it's also the beginnings of females developing their own strategies for successful reproduction. Now, sharks give
1: birth to live young. They have pups. Can you draw, I think puppet is the word, can you draw a line from these creatures to the shark?
0: Yeah, well, once upon a time, when the Victorian scientists studied the first placoderms, they basically thought they were sharks with armour on them. But in the origin of sharks, they basically imagine a bony placoderm with a shark-like body, and to get a shark, you simply lose that placoderm bony armour, and then you keep going and lose all the bone in your skeleton, and you end up with a shark. So, you know, that's one of the revolutionary things is that we always wanted to find the, the, the story of what happened with sharks. Did they evolve bone and lose it or did they evolve a special kind of cartilage right from the get-go? And then in 2005, it was July the 7th, I remember the day perfectly, I was out in go smashing rocks and then bang, I split a rock and it had a strange... Jaw with little flecks all around it. And when I looked at it under the hand lens in the field, I could see one of those flecks was a tooth and a tooth with many spikes coming out of it. And that's typical of sharks. I'd found the first go go shark after 60 years of, of people hunting the sites. And that shark was heavily mineralized cartilage. So it actually acid prepared out of the rock. And then we put it through our CT scanners. We found an amazing thing that not only was this shark. Uh, had a highly mineralized kind of cartilage, but between the blocks of cartilage there were remnant bone cells, osteocytes. So we actually found a shark that bridged the gap between living sharks that don't have bone, they just have cartilage, and ancient sharks that had the beginnings of bone or probably had bony plates on them, you know, like placoderms. So, yeah, it sort of, it kind of fitted in a nice gap in the story that sharks are what they are today and why they're so successful, because they've lost bone and became streamlined and light skeletons, so they're they're, they're fast predators. You've done
1: four expeditions to Antarctica, is that right, John? Yep, that's right. What are you looking for there?
0: Well, Antarctica was joined to Australia in the Devonian, so it was all one big area. And the Transantarctic Mountains have wonderful exposures of Devonian river deposits, rivers and lakes. And earlier Australian expeditions there with the Kiwis back in the 70s found some amazing fossil fish. So I went back in a series of expeditions from starting in 1988, and the last one was actually just a couple of years ago, 2018-19. I was there with the Americans, with Neil Shubin and his team. John, how on earth can you find anything in Antarctica under all that snow and ice? Well, Richard, it's the mountains. They stick up well above the ice, and they're pure rock. There's no soil or plants to distract one from the outcrops of rock. And the rocks are exposed due to the wind and the sun. Um, You know, they don't all get covered with snow. So we have to end up having a base camp and then, then climb these mountains and look at the outcrops where you get the layers exposed. And yeah, we found a number of really neat fossil fishes from Antarctica that represent all of these different kinds we've been talking about, from the ancient placoderms through to the advanced, robust lobe fin fishes that were close to land animals. What does it mean to go
1: out to those mountains? Because I don't think they're, <laughs> they're near the coast, are they? And so, no.
0: and, and what, and how long do you spend out there? And how do you live out there in that camp? Well, the biggest of these expeditions, and the one that was closest to the early sort of. Um, you know, heroic expeditions, shall we say, of you know, of those early explorers, was, was one that we did in 1991 to 1992. I went down with the Kiwis. There was four of us. Um, Margaret Bradshaw, who's a paleontologist, was the leader of that expedition. We were so far out away from base that we had to be put in by a Hercules aircraft and then offloaded with our gear. And then we spent two and a half months sledging through mostly unknown territory we were the first to climb some of these mountains and map the geology of those areas. It was exciting. It was dangerous, and we we're only on highs of discovery or or highs of are we going to survive the next day with <laughs> storms and crevasse fields and avalanches and so on. I wrote a book on it actually called Mountains of Madness, which came out in two thousand, and it details the you know the trials of working in Antarctica um, when you're out there in the elements for a long period of time. And did you get caught in crevasses and avalanches? We did. We went through a, a couple of crevasse fields where we had to walk our way out slowly with, with crevasse probes. We had skadoos pulling sledges at those times and, uh, you know, we're lucky to get, you know, we escaped, we got out of trouble a couple of times. There was one time, though, I had a, a very close near miss. It was January the 1st, 1992, and we'd been up celebrating the night before the new year and everyone wanted to stay in their tents. And we were so close to this fossil site that we'd just arrived at that I said, I just want to go over and have a look at those rocks. I'll, I'll be all right. You know, I've been two months in Antarctica at that stage. I was pretty experienced. So they let me go out by myself. And I was walking through this deep sort of valley with uh, the snow was almost up to my waist. And suddenly I slipped and felt, felt myself falling, but I, I thrashed to one side and there below me was a crevasse, and I just sort of just narrowly missed falling through it. But I was a bit shaken, but I carefully walked over onto the, the, the mountain and got up to the, the rocky layers and then going across to another outcrop there, I, I looked up and I got a, a sort of wall of snow come down and tumble me along, so <laughs> mini avalanche kind of thing. But the strangest thing was about that, I was really shaken up, but I traced my footprints back very carefully to the camp, so I made it back avoiding the crevasse. And the next day our field survival guy, Brian, came out with a big crevasse probe and said, well, let's check and we'll make sure we get a safe access onto that mountain. And in tracing my footsteps, he discovered I'd walked over seven crevasses and broken through one. And it was a sheer miracle that I'm here today, but anyway... That was part of that expedition. It was um, kind of reshaped the way I think about life. <laughs> yeah, we're such tiny little
1: fly specks on the face of the earth, aren't we? And uh, nature is indifferent to whether we, we we live or die in such places. That's right. Mm.
0: But it is an awesome place, and it does make one reflect deeply about the planet and and life and and all the big big ticket things. How so? Well, you have a lot of time for deep thinking, deep introspective thinking, and and. Uh, the other thing I'm passionate about is motorbikes. I, I still have a motorbike. I've been riding for 45 years. And and like Antarctica and, or riding on a motorbike alone, you have this lots of time to just... You're sitting on an outcrop on the top of a mountain in Antarctica and you can just think and process and digest things. And um, I look back on my field notebooks from that expedition. I've, it's full of poetry and all sorts of ramblings and writings because, you know, there were no distractions. You were either working or you were eating, sleeping, or just having some time to think. And that's a wonderful thing that few people have time to do these days, uh, to just think deeply about everything going on around you. And do you walk away from that feeling better? I think so. Um, Those expeditions from Antarctica were a very important part of my life, and I still think about them often. And going back in 2016 and 2018 was really quite... Um, a big thing for me to do all the training again and pass all the medical tests and then be airlifted into the field again in the same way. Although we didn't need Hercules aircraft, we had twin otters and, and, and helicopters. But yeah, just being down in that remote, pristine environment. I, I had a thought that, you know, one or two times on those trips, we were probably most of the remote humans on Earth, you know, so far away from the base and all of this. But you just get to enjoy a pristine environment and you can see the way the world is without being interfered by human human presence. And one of the the striking things is if you climb one of those high mountains in Antarctica and it's a clear day, you can see the curvature of the earth. You can actually see the tops of mountains in the distance that are hidden because the earth is curved. And you know, that's, that's an amazingly rev- revelationary moment that, that you can have. You mentioned there you're a motorbike enthusiast. Do you have a, a kind
1: of a, a theory, a theory of the universe or a the theory of evolution that sort of
0: Plugs into a theory of motorbikes as well. How does that work, John? <laughs> I actually do um, about the parallels between the evolution of life and the trends we see in automotive design. By researching motorbike history, and you know, I did a tr- I didn't just read a few books. I actually did a trip around the world in 2017, visiting some of the great motorcycle museums in Germany, BMW, and uh, Britain, and Italy, and. America, and I've been to a lot of these motorcycle museums and talked to their curators and their experts to see if the trends that you see in the development of motorcycle design do match evolution in places. And they do, actually. (laughs) As a metaphor, the trends in, say, the complexity of an engine might follow Dollar's Law of Complexity of Evolution or the increase of size of Harley-Davidson motorbikes over the 20th century match Cope's law of gigantism in dinosaurs, you know? Sorry, Cope's law of gigantism in dinosaurs can it apply to motorcycles? Yeah, yeah. That given enough resources, um, things get bigger in an evolutionary lineage. And... After World War II, with a lot more disposable cash in the buyer's pocket, there was a demand for bigger and bigger motorbikes. And, you know, they got bigger, both the Japanese and the the Harley Davidsons and many of the others, but not necessarily significantly more power or they could still do the same job, but the just motors got bigger and bigger, you know. So I look at that and look at the resource base and I compare it to dinosaurs getting bigger in a greenhouse world because the resource base got bigger. And Dollo, Louis Dollo, who discovered dinosaurs, and he was an engineer and a scientist, came up with a law of increasing complexity in evolution. And you can see these trends in Ducati engines as well. So, yeah, I'm having fun just playing around with these, these parallel uh, lines of, of thinking. John, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you and so
1: enlightening as well. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, Richard. Thank you for inviting me. Professor John Long is a paleontologist at Flinders University. And recently, John was back at Gogo Station and was involved in another amazing discovery. He and his team found the world's oldest ever vertebrate fossil heart inside a gogo fish in the Kimberley. It's a placoderm heart that's 380 million years old. He's also been involved in investigating the history of the world's first mega sharks, and he's discovered that they were up to 20 metres long. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening.
0: Listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au/slash conversations.
1: Hi, I'm Kurt Fernley, Paralympian, and proud person with a disability.
0: And I'm Sarah Shans, mum of a bright, bubbly, hilarious kid with a disability.
1: I'm an hilarious. I'm fabulous. We're the hosts of a new ABC podcast called Let Us In. Each week, we'll speak with people from around Australia to find out what it's like to live with a disability.
0: She belongs in society; that she's not going to be separated because of who she is and her disability. Every time I arrive at the airport, I turn into someone I don't like. I start to volunteer in different places because I believe to be a volunteer, it keeps you alert.
1: The way that I think about it is that shame is the voice of rejection whispered in in the ear that says, I am not worthy.
0: Real stories from people with disability about what's really going on.
1: Let us in. There's a new episode out every Wednesday on the ABC Listen Up.